Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 12. And the last time we saw a really awesome portion of scripture. Uh, Chapter 11, especially my favorite few verses at the end, 28 through 30. And six people in this fellowship came up, not knowing each other except for two of them. And they all gave themselves their, their hearts to the Lord. That was an amazing sight to see for a church our size. It's just incredible what God's word will do. And today, we're going to look at the age-old problem of organized religion, which is really man's attempt to justify himself to really get to heaven on his own. And we saw that in the Tower of Babel, in the Genesis account. Men were just building these, these ziggurats and higher and higher and higher, and God finally had to confound them. It was man's attempt, really figuratively and, and physically, an attempt of man to get to heaven, to get to a good place at the end, really without God, though. We're a little unusual because that's kind of his abode, and he created everything. Versus God's desire, which is really a relationship with us that he's created. Now, every Sunday, somebody comes in from the community that I don't recognize, somebody new, and I don't know your story unless you tell it to me. But I want to tell you that God loves you, every individual here. You could be the grievest of sinners. You could be the person that everyone's taken advantage of in your life. You could be in a relationship where someone has told you and brainwashed you for years that you're no good and you're useless. Well, I would tell you that that's wrong. God loves you. And his desire is for all men and women to be saved. Now, I will tell you that any man up here who tries to articulate the scripture will never, ever, do a good job in this life explaining or convincing how great God's love is. That's how immense his love is. I can't, no matter what words I use, no matter what poetic language, no matter how much I yell and scream, God loves you. And you need to understand that. But we're going to look at religion. We're going to look at the Pharisees, uh, the pious, religious men of Jesus' day. They made religious burdens so heavy that the masses felt hopeless in getting to God. And that's what religion does. It puts burdens on top of the good things that God tells us to do or helps to keep us out of trouble with his law, his, his boundaries, his, his love for us so that we don't hurt ourselves. But religion puts burdens on top of that. I've had many come to me and say, hey man, I have a problem with organized religion. And I usually respond, hey man, so do I. You know. So if you're one of those people, you'll probably get a kick out of today's message. Starting in verse 1 in chapter 12, it says, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. What's the Sabbath? Well, we know it's the fourth commandment. I'm going to read Exodus 20, starting with verse 8. It says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter nor your manservant nor your maidservant nor your cattle nor your stranger nor who, anyone who is within your gates. Interesting, even the animals got a break on that day. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. 
He sanctified it. He made it holy. Remember, these people just came out of slavery. No doubt they were working day and night, day and night. And if you couldn't produce, they probably killed you because you weren't useful to the Egyptians back then. And now God is speaking about a day of rest. And this is good, to rest and reflect, right? To take a break, especially those of us from New Jersey, of all the hustle and bustle and the stressful situations and the deadlines and the things I got to do Sunday and the things I have to do as soon as I leave this building. Rest and reflect. Here comes the problem. Man's overanalyzation, man's spin, Man's looking at what God says and looking for some veiled, secretive, intellectual, higher plateau meaning beyond what God says. Just do what he says. Right? Why do we make it so difficult? So what they were saying, really, and if you look at, I'm going to get a lot of this from some rabbinical commentary at the time, that they felt that if the disciples picked the heads of, of grain, they were reaping. Right? And if they rubbed the edible part from the inedible part, they were threshing. So that was considered work. And you couldn't do that on the Sabbath, according to man. So enter religion. The first problem with religion is it's not what God originally intended. Well, it's about 10 of these. Religion is man's attempt to get to heaven through meritorious work, a meritorious system, really circumventing a relationship with God. Remember, relationships take work. And we were, we're all in some type of relationship, even if we have a friend or a biological sibling or somebody. It's a relationship, but it takes work. The more rules, rites, rituals you add, the more holy and pious religion appears. There's a, uh, a, an item called a, a Shabbat elevator. How many of you have heard that? Okay. In a very orthodox, in some places in Israel, uh, religious Jewish communities, they have these elevators that on the Sabbath, because you can't press a button, because a, br- a button makes a spark, a spark indicates a fire, you know, those of you from a Jewish background, you're laughing because you're familiar with it. And you can't build a fire on the Sabbath. So what these elevators do is you walk up to them and they sense your presence and they open up automatically. You walk in, they close automatically. They go to every floor, stop, open up, and close all day long on the Sabbath. What about the fact that you have to walk into the elevator? You know what I'm saying? What about the fact that if you did nothing on the Sabbath and you just sat there, your brain is at work. It's using energy. Your autonomic nervous system is at work. Your heart is beating. Your blood pressure is regulated. Your temperature is being maintained. You're breathing. So how do you suspend that for the Sabbath? So this stuff gets a little bit ridiculous when you take it to its extreme, and it's not what God has intended. However, this stuff exists in Christianity too, right? Before we move on, and this brings us to the second problem, is the Pharisees, think about this. Uh, And I could just picture Jesus and the disciples, and they're going from town to town, and uh, the law said that you could go through your neighbor's grain fields, and if you were hungry, you could pluck those heads of grain and satisfy your hunger. You know, God is concerned about man's need. And I could picture the Pharisees you know, maybe kind of telling them in an unmarked car, you know, watching from a distance. You know, what are they going to do? What's next? So finally, they find something that they can accuse them with. So the Pharisees are ready to pounce. And then they start saying, hey, these are our traditions. You guys are breaking this stuff. Second problem with religion is it's fault finding. It's scrutinizing. I've talked to many that have come from churches that said, you know, the minute I walked in, I realized I didn't belong there. 
Maybe they weren't from the same socioeconomic background. Maybe they didn't have the right clothes. Maybe they weren't from the same age group. And it was obvious to them that it was a closed system and that they weren't welcome. I certainly hope that we don't do that here. You know, what I'm blessed is the fact that we have people from all walks of life here. And everyone's welcome anytime to come in off the street and make their home here. So the problem with religion, though, is, and, and some of you have said this, I feel like I'm under a microscope. I feel like I'm being scrutinized. And, and a lot of people have a problem with church because of that. Verse 3. Then he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, not for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you read, not read in the law, that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless. You got to watch Jesus's wordings because he, he, I don't want to say that he's purposely trying to get under their skin, but have you not read? Of course they read. They were the religious leaders. But he's basically saying, but have you not read? Are you just reading with your mind or are you reading with your heart? Are you understanding God's concepts and his love? Or are you just reading something to fulfill your own pet doctrines? Verses three through five. Jesus uses two examples in scripture that kind of really shuts him down because you don't see a response. The first one we can find in 1 Samuel 21. David, who was not king, well, he wasn't uh, on the throne yet as King David, but running from Saul, uh, Saul the king was maddened, wanted to kill David. And David and his men no doubt were famished and they end up going to the temple and they're starving. And the priests basically say, listen, there's, there's nothing here except for the showbread. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, it was those loaves of bread that were put out on a table that were only lawful for the priest to eat. But because his men were so hungry, the priest asked a few things. Have they stayed away from women? Are they um, pure? You know, he had a few questions from him. He goes, okay, you could eat the bread. That presents a problem to the Pharisees because they revered David very highly. But human need trumped ceremonial uh, laws. Understand, though, that neither Christ nor their disciples nor his disciples violated any of God's law, only the religious men's interpretation of it. Jesus' second example, the priests, they had temple duties, and some of those temple duties fell on the Sabbath. If you read Numbers 28, you can see all the duties uh, that they had. Again, presents a problem to these religious men. Sometimes we can intellectualize the Bible so much and miss the point that we back ourselves into it, we paint ourselves into an intellectual corner, and now, well, how do they respond to Jesus? Because they turn this into such an extreme. They couldn't respond to him. What it shows, too, is that uh, sometimes laws come in, con in conflict, and one has to take precedence over another. I'll give you an example. Gravity, right? You, if I jump off this stage, <laughs> I'm going to better brace myself, otherwise I'm going to collapse because the ground's going to pull me down at like 9.8 meters per second squared. But if I put airfoils on my arms and I go back like two blocks and run really fast and I get to a high enough speed and then leap off the stage, I'm probably going to sail for a while. Why? Because Bernoulli's principle is at work. The airfoil and the velocity of the wind going over the airfoil. The top of the wing versus the, the bottom of the wing. However, gravity is still present. And gravity is just waiting until I slow down a little bit so Bernoulli's principle isn't as powerful and it pulls me down. But I can defeat gravity, right? I can overrule gravity with Bernoulli's principle as long as I have that velocity going. So you see how two laws come in contact. They're both at work, but one will take precedence over another. Verse 6. 
But I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, Jesus just quotes that from Hosea 6.6 in the Old Testament, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So one is greater than the temple, and of course that's the Christ. As a matter of fact, the temple was a figure or a, a type of the Christ to come and in many different ways. But number one, the priests were guiltless because they served the temple or in this temple on the Sabbath. And the disciples now were also guiltless because they served the one greater than the temple on the Sabbath. The third problem with religion is the interpretations of God's law that are impossible to comprehend or follow. Now, this isn't always the case, but you can see this, and you can make some generalizations here. There was a, a law that said that if you had a false leg, that you couldn't walk on the Sabbath, because if you had a false leg, you would have to carry a burden. Yeah, I mean, you check these, these laws out. Again, don't, don't mean to pick on them, but aren't some under the guise of Christianity so filled with laws that have nothing to do with God, what God said that it becomes very difficult for the people to try to follow God? Again, the third problem, interpretations of God's law that are impossible to either comprehend or to follow, causing many to just give up. Give up. And by under, not understanding God's heart on the matter, they missed the point and condemned the guiltless. They condemned anyone who was caught in their gaze doing something that they didn't believe was right. You ever meet a Christian who has so much head knowledge, who can quote so many things, but they can't live their lives? How about the, the man, usually, who has all the rules for the marriage spelled out, what the husband should do? what the wife should do, what pastors aren't teaching about marriage, and then you go home and find out that him and his wife don't speak to each other. Clean up your house first, and then you can preach to us about marriage. My marriage is part and parcel to my ministry. If my wife and I are on the brink of divorce, that kind of presents a problem with me in the pulpit now, doesn't it? Verse 7, no secrets, that's actually not happening. (laughs) Sometimes you have to say that. (laughs) In verse 7, Actually, last um, Sunday, I said, Heather, in the middle of the service. So I've got my wife on my brain. That's a good thing. In verse 7, Jesus again quotes Hosea 6.6. Now, he also did this in chapter 9. Basically, had they known the meaning of this scripture, they wouldn't have condemned the guiltless. Well, here's the truth. The truth, sacrifice, mercy. I desire mercy more than sacrifice. Okay, well, this is how it works. Sin is offensive to God. So sinners have to make sacrifices. They have to go to the temple. They have to go before the priest. They have to uh, take that poor, innocent animal that might have been their pet, and its blood had to be shed because because of the person's sin. So what happens was sacrifice leads to God's mercy. His anger against sin is appeased because of the innocent animal, right? And God now shows mercy to the sinner, and that's God's goal. By the same token, God wants us also to show mercy to each other. Are we known as merciful? I mean, think about sometimes it's a little self-introspection there, a little self-reflection. Do people know me as merciful? When when I've got you, you know, really got you, do I do I put my foot on your neck or do I uh, do I show mercy? The question that we we should all ask ourselves Uh, in this society. Uh, mercy was very important. And what would happen is we can beat up on each other 
And then we could just go, if we lived back then, take, well, I got another lamb, you know, I, I sinned, I'll just take it to the priest. And it becomes like a, a, it becomes a ritual, it becomes a religion. God's like, I'm sick of your sacrifices. I'm sick of smelling the burnt offerings. I just wish that you would show some mercy to each other. And that society, they didn't get it. In verse 8, he says, the son of man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. In essence, I fashioned the law. I'll let you know its intentions. I'll let you know what's right and what's wrong. See, God's concepts and laws, especially in the Sabbath, were designed to help us, not to hurt us. Again, giving us rest. <sighs> giving us physical rest. Giving us mental rest. A mental health day. Giving us spiritual rest. To just reflect on the Lord instead of going, 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 and then running ourselves into the ground. How many have been there? Many years ago, I did that to myself. And I had anxiety attacks because of it. I should have heeded a little something from what God said, but again, I didn't know the Lord back then. So the fourth problem with religion, it keeps you in bondage to its rites, its rituals, its observances, its liturgical functions. I want to read Colossians 2.20. Only uh, four verses here. The Apostle Paul, he said, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, are you born again? Why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulation? Quote, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. This is religious stuff. Which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgences of the flesh. I looked up the word religion and religious in the scripture, and it's not used that often, and when it's used, it's usually used in a negative light versus relationship, and I'll get to that. Um, even James says, you, you really want to have, and I really look at this in the way he's speaking to his audience. They were off the mark. Uh, James, they say, is like the Sermon of the Mount um, or the, um, the law of the, well, I can't think of what it was called. That was good. Uh, basically, James is like the Sermon of the Mount uh, in, in his, he kind of puts everything together in his book. But basically, he says to the religious, you really want to be religious? He goes, don't be spotted by the world and take care of widows and orphans. And to me, that was basically saying to them, you got your religion, but wouldn't it be a little bit better if your heart was there? There's widows, there's orphans that could use your help. You know, don't become like the world. So if you look at that word, it doesn't appear in a, in a positive light in the scripture. Religion says, do all these things and maybe God will accept you. Maybe God will accept you. I will tell you that for me, just like those of, of Jesus's day uh, years ago, I tried it and I was confused and I gave up. So I joined the partiers. I'm, my attitude was, I'm done. There's no way I'm ever going to make it to heaven, so I might as well hang out with these people. And that's what I did for a while, right? The fifth point. Religion will often push us away from God, except instead of fostering a relationship with him. When I became born again, I was excited. You know, I was in my 20s, and I was like, gee, my father in heaven, to me, was like somebody just telling me that I had a father, that lived in a faraway, you know, overseas that I never knew he was alive and I never knew him. And I just found out who he was and I got a free plane ticket to go see him and spend time with him. You want to catch up. Hey, let me tell you about me. Hey, I want to learn about you. When I became born again, I wanted to make up for lost time. 
There was a relationship aspect that never happened before in my entire life, and it was exciting. Now, I'm going to read Matthew 23, and I'm not going to take it apart. I'm just going to read it in its context. 2,000 years ago, now think about your life. Think about some friends you may have. Think about maybe a religion you might have grown up in. Listen to the words of Jesus and see if the light bulb goes off. Think about some ministries. Think about maybe some Christian TV you see. And let me read what Jesus says to the religious leaders of his day. Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe... That observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best feasts or the best places at the feasts, the best seats in the synagogue. Greetings in the marketplace, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be abased. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you do devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. And whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, and inside are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And I'll leave it there. Is it any wonder that the religious community wanted to have him crucified after that? (laughs) Remember, these men were respected. The people would walk by, and and sometimes with their robes, they they would not let their robes flap in the breeze. They would hold it close because they might touch a sinner and become defiled. This was the religious leaders. 
that Jesus had a problem with. Unfortunately, the Pharisaic spirit is still alive today in some forms of Christianity. Now, I'm just going to say this. Some may really like what's being said today. I'm just going to use as much scripture, and I agree with the scripture. Some may not. But the statistics are there. Number one, you can look it up very easily. There's a net loss in the pastorate. Men are leaving the pulpits. Two, churches are closing. It's really bad in Europe. As a matter of fact, I've seen pictures of churches where they cut off the steeple. Sort of what we did, but it's because ours was leaking. We had a good excuse. (laughs) They cut off the steeple and roll Arabic writing over the windows and such and turn it into mosques. Islam is buying them like like hotcakes. This is what's going on. We're losing the youth and we're losing the lost. And it's not because they're turned off by Jesus, because if they really knew the true Jesus, they wouldn't be turned off. He's attractive to everyone in every demographic. He transcends all people, regardless of who they are. The problem is they're turned off by religion and church. And you know where they're going? They're going to apostates like Rob Bell, pastor of Mars Hill. Here's a guy who wrote, Love Ultimately Wins. This guy is a parasite. What he does is, First of all, he's making millions. He's, I guess, smart in the worldly way. And what he does is he preys off of the fears of those who are afraid of hell. And the premise of the book is basically that even if you do go to hell, it's not eternal. Eventually, God will melt your heart and he'll pull you out of hell. I got news for you. If you find yourself in the flames of fire and think they're going to cool off anytime soon, you're sadly mistaken. It's too late. This guy's a universalist and he's got a lot of other stuff mixed in on there. That's where they're going to, because he's telling people what they want to hear. Look at the interview, if you YouTube it, between Martin Bashir and Rob Bell. Guy's an apostate of the apostates. And unfortunately, listen, some think I, like, think I enjoy bringing up certain names and certain trends. I don't. My nature is to get along with everyone. But these are the times we live in. The Bible says that apostasy will continue, that many who supposedly or maybe started out good in ministry have gone the wrong way. There's so many apostate teachings out there, and it's finding its way into the church. But that's where we're sending them if we're not uh, you know, changing and, and showing the love of Christ. I've had um, a guy once who came in, and, and this happens a, f- a few times. He came in, and he was from a tradition and wanted to bring a lot of the rights and stuff to our church. Uh, and he said to me, you know, I said to me, I just out of curiosity, what church do you come from? And I won't say the name of it. He told me. And I said, so why are you here? He goes, well, because that church is dead. <laughs> so logically I asked, and you want to bring that stuff here? You know what I'm saying? I don't understand the logic, right? We're not denominationalists. We are Christians, We are not lifelong Methodists or Calvaries or Catholics or Baptists. We are Christians. We follow Jesus Christ. And as we follow the word of God, I've said it before, it gets rid of all the the denominational um, pet doctrines that they skip around because it may affect their pet doctrines. The word of God brings us together. It doesn't divide us. It's important to understand. Right? We can resist change and we can sit on the platform and watch the train of the Holy Spirit go by. Or we can be on that train. The choice is ours. I've even seen and I've heard about this that maybe small churches and schools or little house churches or Bible studies have been called by the establishment, well, they're a cult. Let me read to you the definition according to Webster's Dictionary. Very interesting. The second uh, rendering of the word cult 
It's a system of religious worship. Look at the irony there. Now let's go back into Webster's and read the definition of relationship, which is what God desires. Number one, the quality of being related, a connection. God wants a connection with every person here. Every person here. Second definition, connection by blood, marriage, or kinship. How many times do we read in the scripture that God looks at us as a husband to a bride or, or, or brothers or uh, adopted into the family of God? There's a kinship. There's a connection there. Three, unrelationship. A continuing attachment or association between persons. I like that. Continuing attachment. John 15, abide in me. Another translation is remain in me, stay in me. God wants us to continue our relationship with him. Does he want that for me, Pastor Joe? Absolutely. Absolutely. Since Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden, man has been trying to reach God through his own systematic efforts. Prior to Christ, look at this in 2 Kings, uh, Hezekiah had to take the bronze staff. Remember Moses all the way back in the wilderness lifted up the bronze serpent and whoever looked at it would be healed from their snake bites? Do you realize that many years later people actually found that bronze serpent, probably put it in a nice glass case and started worshiping? To the point where Hezekiah in his reforms had to find that bronze staff and knock that nonsense out. And he took the staff and he broke it. And he said, Nehushtan, the thing is a thing of bronze. Get rid of it. Destroy it. The sixth point about religion focuses more on objects that God uses than God himself. This stuff gets weird in Europe. They've got all kinds of glass cases with the, possibly the bones of John the Baptist or a piece of the cross of Christ. This stuff gets crazy. It's, it's statues and relics. It's, that's not in the scripture. If you look all the way in the Bible, God hated that stuff. He made them burn it. He made them destroy it. The golden calf was ground into pieces and, 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 you know, and, and burned with fire. What do you think of that? Or verse 9. Now when he had departed from there, he went up into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, that they might accuse him? Then he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. Now, Jesus goes into the, the synagogue. It's the Sabbath. Is it possible that this man, you know, was purposely found from among the villagers and, you know, brought in there because they knew Jesus would heal him? Was it possible that the man was used to trap Jesus and then for them to say, so Jesus, what do you think of healing on the Sabbath? Oh, look, we have somebody who has a withered hand. Check this out. Seventh problem with religion. It can often be sterile, more concerned with rules than with people. In Mark's gospel, he adds that Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So if we start looking at the Sabbath or any of these rites or whatever, and we see that we start to worship it, when it was designed to help us, we're going in the wrong direction. Right? It's a problem. What I find absolutely amazing is they knew Jesus' character. They knew that whoever they put in front of them on the Sabbath or any day who was, you know, something was wrong with them, Jesus would heal, with, heal them. Right? 
So my question is, what, what are we known by in our character? Are we known by, uh, and we said before, somebody that shows mercy? Somebody that would not see another person in need and just walk past them, but try to help or at least pray for them if maybe we don't know what to do? That's a good question. But Jesus, of course, was using their hypocrisy against them. Of course, if they had a farm animal that fell in the pit. As a, a matter of fact, I believe I read in the law where you could uh, rescue or you ca- could help. Now, the rabbinical laws made it so that, let's say somebody was bleeding. And, and again, it gets really intricate. On the Sabbath, if somebody's bleeding to death, you could put on a tourniquet. But that's it. You can stop the bleeding, and then you leave them there. So the whole thing with bandages and trying to repair them, you can't do that until the next day. You know, so the person, probably by the next day, their arm falls off. But this was in rabbinical law, right? Because they took it to such an extreme. Now, here's the irony, too, is that Jesus uses an example of a sheep. And Jesus usually uses that example to illustrate a person. So what's more important, guys, a person or an animal that falls into a pit on the Sabbath? I'm just rescuing that person. I'm helping them. It's quite possible that uh, this disabled man would have never uh, crossed Jesus' path again. And this might have been his only opportunity in his whole life to be healed. And the Pharisees were fine with just letting that opportunity come and go. But Jesus wasn't going to allow that to happen. The eighth point, or the eighth problem, religion keeps us in a prison of legalistic confinement. Now, Mark's gospel adds that Jesus, he knew their hearts, and he looked around at them. And number one, he had anger. He was angry at them because of the way they treated each other. And they were supposed to represent God. And that's another problem with religion. If a pastor falls or a pastor embezzles money or the molestation scandals, what people see is, well, that's God's representative. You know, maybe when I get to heaven, I'll ask God, why didn't you confound that person beforehand? I mean, I know he gives us free will. I get all that. Uh, But some look at anyone who's behind the pulpit or a priest or a rabbi as a representative of God. So when they do something really willful, really mean, really wicked, what happens is the person gets turned off towards the things of God. But it shouldn't be so. So Jesus looked at these guys with anger, but he also grieved at the hardness of of their hearts. He had mixed emotions, Jesus. And I'm just curious, how many churches could Jesus go to today in America and look around and be angry and grieved if he looked in our hearts. Are we towards people, or are we just self-centered? Do we purposely go through life with blinders on and not see the person in need? You know, my son is, uh, my wife and I have this pithy cliche with him. We say people before computers. You know, most kids today, they got the, the DS, and you know, you could give this kid a new cartridge and put it in his thing, and in like a minute, he knows how to use it, and I'm still scratching my head. I actually try to, you know, so I could engage him and play. I, I played Mario Kart, and I, I really like Mario Kart. But, you know, I'm, I'm a really good driver in real life, but I just can't seem to beat him in that game. <laughs> but the bottom line is, if we're somewhere, and he takes out the game, and someone is asking him questions or trying to talk to him, um, there will be times where I'll take the game and close it, put it aside, and I'll say, people before computers. Because that's what we need to be teaching our kids. And and the religious leaders certainly should have had that as the highest priority. Verse 14, then the Pharisees went out and took counsel against him, how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them. 
And he warned them not to make them, him known that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. And I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. So why did Jesus do this? Did he, was he running away? Was he, uh, the answer is that there was a prophetic timetable for Christ's crucifixion. This is really the, the crescendo, the apex of these guys wanting to kill him. You know, he's making us look bad. People are seeing it. You know, we're starting to lose fellowship. We're starting to lose money. You know, it all translates into dollars and cents. It, we could lose our power base. The Herods may come down on us because of this. Think about all the worldly reasons why they had a problem with the Messiah coming on the scene. So they decide, we're going to kill this guy. The ninth problem with religion. It is often opposed to a work or a new work of the Holy Spirit because it's, it's threatened. Its existence is threatened by a new work of the Holy Spirit. Remember Jesus spoke about, I love this, the wineskins. He says, you got your old wineskins, and, and they don't stretch, and they don't give, and they don't, you know, they don't do anything. They're just kind of like solid and if you put new wine in those wineskins, and then it starts to ferment, now wine was indicative of the Holy Spirit. Well, we could either be the old wineskins or the new wineskins. What happens is if you try to put a new work of the Holy Spirit in old dead religion, or the old dead mindset, you know, or, the, or the, you know, a not a relationship with God, it's going to tear that old wineskin as it exists. Because you, you can't contain the Holy Spirit. And the wine's going to come out, and the skin's going to be ruined. However, with a new wineskin, the new wineskin is pliable. It has elasticity, and it can stretch with what the Holy Spirit is doing, and it can go in, and it can go out. And you know what? We just, we just jump on the train. Wherever the Holy Spirit goes, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of that. That's pretty exciting. Now, a note on the whole Sabbath thing. Some ask me, well, what, about, what does it mean to us? There's a few things, which I don't want to get into too in, too in depth, but... Um, it was part of the Old Covenant. It was for a purpose. There was typology there. We know in Acts chapter 15 in the Jerusalem Council, there was only three or four mandates for the Gentiles to follow as part of the Old Covenant uh, in going forward. They didn't have to be circumcised. They didn't have to follow all the rites of Judaism. You know, they were free from that stuff. But there's just a few things they had to observe, and the Sabbath wasn't one of them. We also know that in Hebrews 4, uh, the Sabbath rest uh, is a picture of Christ, the Messiah. Right? And, and actually, last Sunday, when six people came up to receive the Lord, we were in Matthew 11, and the last three verses, Jesus kept speaking about rest, about how he would give us rest. So you see how all those things kind of come together. However, again, it's not a bad idea to take a break once in a while. And certainly, if we're going to be trying to make money and build relationships we certainly should be taking a break and taking time to be with the Lord. So there's definitely that is a good thing to do. So Jesus quotes here uh, Isaiah 42, which he often quoted the Old Testament. And this is where we're going to close it, these last few verses. It says, Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will trust. Really, in a sense, probably explaining the withdrawing now, uh, explaining how he's now careful about his, uh, where he's going to go to speak, uh, careful not to get caught up into uh, the traps that they were going to try to seize him and lay hold on him, 
by the same token, those that wanted to make him king before the time, they, the throngs would actually uh, approach him and try to grab at him to, to put, make him a king. They were so excited. So you get those that really loved him and those that really hated him. But either way, that wasn't his time, and he wasn't going to allow his timetable to be accelerated. So this means here, these uh, Old Testament scriptures, that, well, God the Father was delighted to use God, the obedient son, to bring forth the message of salvation, and part of that included bringing the Gentiles to salvation. And he never promoted himself or demanded his rights. But at the son of, as a son of God, he had every right to do that, but he didn't. Some ministries could learn a lesson from this in humility. Jesus would never harm the most fragile in society, but he cared for them and tended to them. But make no mistake, he is mighty. He will come back in power and glory. Now, in these two examples... Again, I want to read uh, a little bit more of Colossians. Uh, in these two examples, we can see an overfocus on religion, tradition, man's philosophy, man's counsel. In Colossians 2, uh, a prison epistle by the Apostle Paul, to combat false doctrine and make sure they understood that Jesus was the head. Let me read a few uh, verses from what Paul says. Uh, Colossians 2, 8 through 10. He says, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. So the first thing we see is philosophy. That word means love of wisdom, reasoning, knowledge, study of human behavior, the things that make men great. The things that make men great. And a lot of men want to be great. So what they do is they start to pull away from God's word because everybody who's, uh, you know, an orthodox evangelical will use God's word. So sometimes what men do is they'll pull away from God's word and then they'll start maybe saying one verse from the Bible, leaving it there, and then for 45 minutes just go round and round about how smart they are and man's philosophy and this book that this guy wrote, and that's what these guys do. I tell you what, a lot of these books that these guys write, do a little search on Google or somewhere about their background because there's a lot of heretical stuff out there. If we have time to read books, we should really know our Bible real well first. That needs to be our basis. The philosophies that these guys are using are to maybe grow ministries, and you see all these how-to books, how to grow your church, how to grow ministries, how to get really more money from people and tithes, and they start to build empires. Man's philosophy. That's not, that's not the model in the scripture. Two, empty deceit. It promises you something, but it gives hollow promises. Understand that anything that's true and lasting in this life has to be tied to the afterlife, because eternity is where it's at. Anything else will let you down. If you've come here and you've been searching and you know, maybe you're even going from church to church and seeing what you might find, just be careful and definitely pray because you will not fill that void that is in every single person. That void is only to be filled by God himself and a relationship with him. And I know many, and, and um, the, the study on Solomon was great. This guy had everything you could imagine and it still was empty at the end of his life. And I know men in our time who have made millions, who have, have been at the highest in their field, and they still have that void. And in their 50s and 60s, they're finally trying to turn to God because they, they thought that they would do it their way, and, and it didn't work out. Three, the traditions of men. 
Too much Christianity is steeped in the traditions of men. And a lot of those traditions, again, pull us away from, we're so uh, fitted to, you know, these Pharisees, they were so uh, looked into the minutiae of the law and they were so studying each other's rabbinical commentaries, patting each other on the back, that they didn't, they missed the concepts that God was trying to show them. And according to the basic principles of the world, if it's not of God's word, it's of the world system. That's the dichotomy. That's the breakdown. And he says in verse 8, let me just go back. He says, let no one cheat or plunder you. In other words, don't let anyone rip you off, number one, if they're showing you any other way of salvation other than the cross. And two, if supposedly you're being grown or matured in the things of God, if it's not based on God's word, you're still being cheated. The tenth problem with religion is anything created by man cannot save, and it will not grow you. So by this time, you may be asking three questions. Number one, well, I did walk in here, and I'm looking at the, the pretty arches and the, and the wood, and I, I thought I saw a cross when I pulled in, and there's a lot of people in the parking lot. Isn't this a church? What about us? Are we a religion? The second question you may ask is, well, what, if anything, are we required to do as form as a, in the form of a ritual or an observance? And three, what does God want from me? And I'm glad you asked all those three questions. <laughs> Whoever did. Let me start with the first one. We're at Calvary Chapel. Um, and what's really neat is Calvary Chapel is based in Costa Mesa, California. But it's kind of funny. They have a sink or swim attitude. They don't tell us what to do. They don't tell us what to do in New Jersey. What's really great is they let us be led by the Holy Spirit. We're autonomous so that we could minister to Jamesburg because in Costa Mesa, they don't know anything about Jamesburg. Now, the funny thing is on the other end of the spectrum is they don't help you if you're sinking either. They don't give loans like a lot of denominations do. I'm just being a little, you can send this to Chuck Smith. He's not going to disfellowship me. This is the way it works. You know, if you're sinking and, you know, their attitude is if God where God guides, God provides. Have fun, you know. If the Lord is in it, you'll, you'll bob water, you'll tread. So, you know, it works both ways. But if Calvary went apostate or they did some weird stuff or, uh, you know, what we would do is we'd take the dove down, remove the sign, get another sign, become somebody else. Not a big deal. It's not about religion. It's not about who we're loyal to. We're loyal to the Lord. A lot of people forget that. Two, what are required, we required to do in the terms of an observance or a rite or a ritual? Only two things, according to the scripture. Two things, you're kidding me? I've seen dozens of things that churches tell you you got to do, and this thing, and you have to do that, or otherwise you're going to go to hell. And No, two things. Number one, actually three things. Number one, baptism, which is rich with meaning. Baptism is a way of, it's a public declaration of you explaining to the world what you are inside. It's an identification with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection out of the water. It's another identification of when you go into the water, you leave the old person behind and come out in newness of life. And there's a lot to it. It's really big. Uh, and that's, that's a good thing. And it's a one-shot deal, pretty much. The second thing that we're required to do is the Lord's Supper. What's that? Communion. And that's basically something where we get together as brothers and sisters that we all, you know, in the body of Christ, and we... We, we have the cup and the bread, and we look back to the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Very important for us to remember. Even in the Old Testament, the children of Israel had to constantly be reminded that God opened the Red Sea and saved them from slavery. And even as believers, we need to be reminded of what God has done for us. 
And we also look forward as a body to his return. We believe in a literal return. The third thing, which really comes in contact with what does God want from me, is, let me just say this. The last problem with religion. God wants a relationship with us, and sometimes an adherence to religion ruins that. What does God want from me? Well, when I read Genesis, I see that God walked in the cool of the garden. God spoke to Adam and Eve. He had conversations with them. He loved them. He had a relationship with them. He did everything to make them comfortable and make them happy. And the sin and the rebellion put a, put a chasm between us. There's a great gulf fixed between us and the Lord. What does God want from us? Jesus says this, the two most powerful portions of scripture in all the Bible, John 14 and John 15. In John 14, Jesus explains that those who love him will follow him, will follow his word, and those who don't won't. Very simple. And in John 15, Jesus says to remain in him, to abide in him. So what does God want from me? Well, to follow his word. Two, if you don't know the Lord and you've come in here and say, you know what, I really do want to follow the Lord. How do I do that? First thing is repentance. It's a scary word, but it's really not that scary. All it means is I've lived my life my way up until now, Lord. I want to start to humble myself, realize that my self-directed life was wrong, sinful, things I've done. I know that you died for my sins. I want to be forgiven of those sins, and I want to follow you as my Lord and Savior. Simple. It wasn't very hard. It doesn't involve money. It doesn't involve sign-ups. It doesn't involve the list of rules and regulations. And then the Holy Spirit will fill you. You know, you'll go on your journey maturing in, in God, and the Holy Spirit will help you and uh, comfort you and exhort you. You have the body of Christ, those that are with you to lift you up and to um, have fellowship with. And it's pretty simple. We really do the best we can to walk with him as the awesome thing that God created in the Garden of Eden. Even David in the Psalms, by himself, penned out the Psalms, how he loved the Lord, how he meditated on his word. Dave, David didn't keep all the, all the law. David was, had an adulterous uh, relationship, right? But David repented, and David had a heart for the Lord. We will fall down, and we will need the Lord to pick us up again. So the last thing I wanted to say to you is uh, God wants a relationship with you. He loves you. Please. Don't let anything be a hindrance to that. I don't care what you did. You know? and, and, and Christ paid for it at the cross. You just have to reach out and take hold of that sacrifice. Let's pray.